reading of God's word. But fortunately, it is laughter where we are laughing with him and not at him. Um, <clears throat> you ever, I'm willing to bet every one of you have wondered sometime in your life, what is God's will for me? I'm willing to bet that there are times when it becomes very unclear. Um, Nehemiah and the people that he was with, they were in a situation like that. They didn't know what the will of God was. Um, so during this building process, there arose a need. So Nehemiah, he was doing a registry of all the people who came back from exile and were now repopulating the once destroyed city of Jerusalem. And they were rebuilding the wall, and they finally finished it. And after they finished the wall, God put into Nehemiah's heart to create a list of everyone who was living there. All the people who came from exile and started living in Jerusalem again. Now, during that time, there were a group of people who were considered priests, now, if we got displaced from our homes and we got removed and had to live in a foreign land, you would lose a lot of, your, a lot of the records of your history. You would lose a lot of that. And that was the situation during this time. So these people were considered priests, but when they looked to the previous genealogical record, Ezra had made one. And they didn't see the names of these priests in that genealogy. And because Nehemiah's concern was not practical focus, but theologically focused, meaning his concern was to be faithful to God, he did not allow those priests to continue as priests until there was proof, evidence given that they were truly priests that God has chosen. Now, one of, the, this, one of the interesting things, I'm not going to go into this that much, but from what Carr read in that last verse, so the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food, meaning only the priests were able, but since their priestly lineage wasn't proven, they weren't allowed to do that until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Now, what in the world are those two words. This is really interesting because Urim and Thummim, according to scholars, now scholars will say they don't really know what those are, right? But essentially what they all agree on is that basically there were two stones, Urim and Thummim. One was white, one was black. And it was kept on the breastplate of the hype of the priest. And it was used to decide what God's will was for people and for the nation. So what they would do is the priest would take the stones out. Some think they were sticks, right? But either case, some, the priest would take the stones out of the breastplate and cast it. And depending on how it rolled, it would determine whether God said yes or whether he said no to something, right? That's really interesting. Because the only modern equivalent we have to Urim and Thummim is rolling dice or flipping a coin. 
And is that really what God's will amounts to? Do we need to flip a coin? And either way, is God okay with whatever we decide? That's the question. How do you, how do you determine things that are unclear when it comes to God's will? Now, there are very clear things. Like, for example, uh, murder. God says, don't do it. <laughs> very clear. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to certain things like, what should you major in? Or should you go to college at all? Um, in what company or business should you work? Uh, what milestones should you achieve? And by what time in your life should you achieve them? See, these things are not so clear. And that's what I want to address because that's what our passage addresses. There were parts of God's will that the people at the time, during Nehemiah's time, they didn't know how to handle. There were unclear parts of what God wanted them to do. And so they had to wait. And a lot of times we have to wait. Now, a lot of times in our culture, there's a saying where we say, follow your heart, right? Now, Many of you who grew up with church, and especially in the Reformed tradition, you guys understand that that phrase is not really a good phrase to live by. And you know why? Because the heart, the Bible says, is desperately wicked. It's sick. It's evil. Right? Let me give you some examples. Uh, right before the flood, in Genesis 6, right before God judged the entire world with the flood, he said, it, the Bible says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay? That's a situation where you don't want to follow your heart, because if you follow the heart, it's going to lead you to very destructive and evil ends. Right? Let me give you another example. Uh, everybody... A lot of people saw the movie Prince of Egypt, right? It was, it's based on the biblical story in Exodus, right? And in that story, Pharaoh, you have Pharaoh and Moses, right, uh, battling. Um, but there's not really much of a battle. It's actually about God delivering his people, right? But in that story, Pharaoh hardens his heart, right? And if you follow your heart when it's hardened, you know what happened to Pharaoh in the end, right? He lost, essentially, right? What happens when you follow your heart when it's hardened? For whatever reason it is, whether from pride or from legitimate difficult circumstances and injustices that have happened to you, whatever the reason is, what if your heart is hardened? Should you follow your heart? Right? Should you trust your heart? No. Biblically, the answer would be no. Forgetting God's... There are other examples. I'm not going to go through, but if you want to just jot down some passages just to reference for yourself to look at later, when, when the heart forgets God's law, we should not follow it. Numbers 15, 38 through 39, right? There's another warning against forgetting God's law, Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 14. There's a warning against self-righteousness. What if the heart is self-righteous, right? It says, do not say in your heart, Right? After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possessed this land. That's in Deuteronomy 9. Basically, before the people of God went into, land, into the land of Canaan, 
God warned them because God knew before the land of Canaan, it was a lot of suffering. They just came out of slavery. You're, you're talking about socioeconomic, you know, difficulty, right? And then after Jordan, and once they go into Canaan, you're talking about a prosperous life, right? So God is saying, once you get into that situation where your life is going to be so much better, don't think, don't ever think your life is so good because you made it that way. That's what he's saying in Deuteronomy 9, right? Self-righteousness. Not listening to God's word. Uh, there are other examples. Let me give you an interesting one. In going into the New Testament, John 13, verse 2, it's talking about Judas Iscariot, the guy who betrayed Jesus. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Okay? So if Satan is the one who puts something into, her, into your heart, you definitely don't want to follow that. It would be very wrong to follow your heart if Satan puts something in your heart to do, okay? Um, and let me give you something that's a little bit more nuanced, where it's not so just black and white. David, in the Old Testament, he wanted to undertake a big project for God. Really good, right? Why shouldn't you follow your heart? In fact, the prophet Nathan told him to follow his heart. In fact, Nathan the prophet says to David, uh, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But you know what happens right after that? If you keep reading in 1 Chronicles 17, God says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. You know what that means? David said, I want to build a house for God. I want to build a beautiful temple for God. Nathan says, hey, you know, God is with you. Do whatever your heart desires. And then God later tells Nathan, Nathan, you got to tell David to stop. He can't do that. He's not the one who's going to build me a house. Number one, because I never commanded it. I never wanted a house. The entire universe is my house. Why would I want to live in David's little shack? You know, it's kind of like that. And he's like, I never commanded this. See, even a religious endeavor, even something you do for the church in the name of Christianity, in the name of God, is not necessarily God's will. In fact, it can be actually against God's will, like in the situation of David building the temple. But God ultimately allowed it to happen, but in his own terms. He let Solomon build it, because David, he was a man of war. He had too much blood on his, he shed too much blood. Um, and a man who used his hands to end the lives of human beings, in God's eyes, was not fit to build a temple of God where God and man would come together in peace and unity. You see? So God always has a certain way of doing things. It's, it's a little bit nuanced. And God's will, knowing God's will, is not as easy sometimes as you would think it to be. It's not as easy as saying, well, I'm doing this for the church, so it's definitely God's will. Well, I'm doing this for in, because I'm a Christian. That's, it, it's not as easy as that. We have to go a little deeper and peel away the layers a little bit more. So how do you know? How do you know God's will? And this is what I want to say. It's not, so I gave you some verses about why it's wrong to follow your heart. 
But I want to tell you, especially for you who grew up in the church and who understand the Reformed tradition, I've been reading this, and I'm, I'm coming to the conviction where it's not enough to say you cannot follow your heart. It's desperately wicked. I'm coming to the point where if we just say that, it's not nuanced enough, and it's too simplistic of an approach to the human heart, especially for one who believes in Jesus Christ. The heart is desperately wicked. That is true. But in another sense, it's right. I will say it's right for Christians to follow their heart when it comes to God's will. And I'm going to explain why. It sounds a little weird, I understand, but just have patience with me and let's go through the biblical verses together, right? Remember, I said it's nuanced, right? So you're not going to find an easy cookie-cutter answer to this. Um, so let's take a look at what qualifies to, a, to fulfilling God's will during unclear circumstances in the context of following your heart, okay? So following your heart can be right and biblical and within the will of God given certain conditions. Let's look at what those conditions are, right? Now, if you look, first let's start with Nehemiah, since that's what we're studying, right? We're looking at Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, he started this uh, genealogy and this list of people because if you look in Nehemiah 7, verse 5, that's the same chapter we looked at, but earlier on in the verse, verse 5, it says, Then my God put it into my heart. And then he says, to make this genealogy list. Okay? God put it into my heart. Now, those of you who are very aware of the skeptical voice, right, when it comes to verses like this, like me, I did philosophy in New York University, I was surrounded by non-Christians. I was ridiculed for being a Christian and wanting to be a pastor. They thought I was the, it was the stupidest thing to chase after, right? <laughs> In the midst of that, right, the common theme that I've always heard was, you know, you're just using God to basically do whatever you want to do, and you're just putting God's name on it like a sticker. You know, Evelyn has this book, Evelyn, my almost three-year-old daughter, she has this book, the stickers, they go on the book, right? She, she really likes stickers, um, but there was one time uh, I was resting on the couch, and I didn't realize this, but by the time I woke up, there were stickers in my hair, on my shoulder, on my back, and all over my arms. And the stickers don't belong there, right? So I want to, I want to agree with my, my college, uh, my fellow college students at that time. Yeah, there are times when Christians wrongfully stick the name of God on things that they just want to do with their life. And it's totally unjustified. But when you look at Nehemiah 7 verse 5, since we understand that the word of God is inspired by God, right? Then my God put it into my heart. When we see something like that, we understand that God really did this. That it's not just a human being subjectively labeling an endeavor to be godly when it's really not. Right? 
when we look at a verse like this, there is a situation, there are situations when God actually puts it into someone's heart, right? Not only that, if you look in Ezra 7, verse 27, if you remember from our, our, our Ezra study, the God of our fathers who puts such a thing as this into the heart of the king, meaning the king, right? During that time, God put it into this non-believing, non, not people of God, Gentile king to rebuild the temple. God did that, right? The Bible testifies to that. Let me give you some other verses. Moving on from Nehemiah and Ezra, going into the larger context of the Bible. In Jeremiah 31, the same book where God says the heart is desperately, it's, it, the heart is wicked and is desperately sick. Who can know it? In that same book where that is said about the heart, this is also said about the heart in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Right? God's law gets placed on the heart, right? Ezekiel 11, verse 19. Now, you can write these verses down. I understand because I'm uh, going through it pretty quick. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, meaning a soft heart. So I will remove the heart of stone, a hard heart, like Pharaoh's, and I will give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart, one that listens to God's word, right? One that wants to listen to God's word, one that's willing to be shaped by God, by his hands, right? Um, Ezekiel 36, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Two times it, appear, it appears in the same book, the same wording. Jumping into the New Testament, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a religious person. He's not a, a non-religious person. Nicodemus is, a, is not only is he religious, he's a leader within his religious system, right? Jesus is speaking to a religious person, Nicodemus, and in John 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know what that means? What does it mean to be born again? It means what Ezekiel is talking about. It means what Jeremiah is talking about. It's a heart that is brand new. It's not, it's not an old heart that's trying to be new. It's a brand new heart that has been put into a person. As Ezekiel says, I will take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Right? I will write my law in their heart. That's what it means to be born again. And the focus is on this idea called regeneration, which basically means, and another word for it is being born again, right? In other words, it's a heart that has been forgiven in Christ. That's what it begins with. It's a heart that has been forgiven in Christ, where your sins are washed away, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. That's what it begins with. Not only is there a focus on regeneration, there's a focus on sanctification. So basically, a heart that has been forgiven in Christ, after it has been forgiven, lives 
like a heart that has been forgiven by forgiving others. How do you, one of the marks of knowing whether a heart is regenerate, is born again, if a heart has been forgiven, it will forgive. Right? That's a mark. That's how you know if your heart is regenerate. In Psalm 37, it says, The law of his God is in his heart. And it talks about, that's regeneration. And it talks about sanctification. His steps do not slip. It doesn't mean he's not in hard places. Like, you know, you guys ever run or walk and you slip and you fall into a ditch, right? You go from a place where you're doing really well and then you slip and then you have some difficulty, right? It doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to you. It means that whatever happens to you, you are in the will of God. That's an amazing statement. That's a powerful and freeing, liberating statement, if you think about it. It means no matter what happens to you, the person who has the law of God in his heart, written in his heart, put into his heart, no matter what happens to him, his steps do not slip. He is always within the will of God. That's amazing. Um, Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that amazing? Psalm 37. Delight yourself. If your delight... if Where does delighting happen? It happens in the heart. If in your heart, what brings you happiness is the Lord. Not his blessings, right? Not his gifts. But the Lord himself, that person, whether he gives or not, whether he takes away or not, just as Job confessed, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood what it was to be happy with God. You know, that's what we parents, what parents want, right? <laughs> From their children. Right? Don't just come to me when you need money. <laughs> right? Um, I want you to have a relationship with me that's not solely based on need. Right? Um, I want us to enjoy each other. I want us to be happy with each other, even though there's no need to be, feel, to be filled. Right? Um, that's what that is. A heart that is happy with God, right? And God says, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, be very careful with this. This is not prosperity gospel teaching, right? Now, you can look at it that way. You can say, oh, okay, so I just need to do certain things for God and just try to be emotionally okay with him, and then he's going to give me whatever I want, right? You know what Edward Welch calls that approach to understanding this verse? He calls that Christianizing our lusts. Let me say that again. Christianizing our lusts. What that means is God becomes this genie in the lamp. You have no relationship with him. You don't really love him. You, don't, you definitely are not happy with him only. But you love what he gives you. You love what he does for you. The social blessings, right? The material blessings. And when you do certain things for God, he gives you stuff. He gives you the desires of your heart. That is not a relationship, right? That's a business transaction. Right? Um, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What that means is when you are happy with God, he will give you the heart to desire 
the right things that God will give you. That's what that means. Your heart will begin to want the things that God wants. Instead of being in competition with what he wants, your heart will finally line up with God's heart. And what God wants, you will want. And what he hates, you will hate. That's why it's okay for the regenerate heart to follow his heart because his heart wants what God wants. You see, there, I, I feel like sometimes, because we emphasize the fact that no, as believers, we shouldn't follow our heart, our, our faith becomes so rational and logical, and we lose out on the passion. You know, I'm guilty of this. You just have to ask Sophita, right? <laughs> See, she's smart. Um, I'm realizing that just saying no, we as believers, we shouldn't follow our heart. It's too simplistic of an answer, and it's an incomplete answer for the complexity of what it means to live by faith in Christ. Way too complex. Right? Um, there are other verses, but one of the ones, the ones that I want to point out to you before I move on is in Colossians. And in Colossians, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let me, let me tell you, if your heart is ruled and governed and dominated in a good way by the peace of Christ, it's okay to follow your heart because that heart is in tune with God and his will. But if that heart's not in tune, it would be terrible to follow your heart. But if the peace of Christ is ruling your heart, it's a blessed place to be, to follow your heart. Because your heart is God's heart. Now, when I say peace of Christ, what do you guys think of? When I, when I think of that, I think of an emotion, like this, this mystical, kind of vague feeling of not being in conflict and being comfortable. That's not, I mean, that's a, that's a, that happens on the side. You know, it's kind of like a side dish, right? You know, you guys like Korean food. I love it. I made, I made tenjang jjigae recently. Sophia said, this is legit, right? <laughs> it's legit, pretty authentic. Now, for me, tenjang jjigae, it's a, it's a main course. It's a dish. You have rice and tenjang jjigae, and I'm good. Now, a side dish would be kimchi or uh, spinach salad or whatever, shikimchi namra or whatever, right? The emotion of serenity is a side dish. That isn't the entree. When it says peace of Christ, the emotion is a side dish. Yeah, you enjoy it, but you're not, you're not sitting in the restaurant waiting for the side dish. Some of you are. It's free, right? <laughs> and that's how I think sometimes. I could go into a restaurant, just have water, and just eat all the side dishes because they're all unlimited, right? And fill up on that. It's a side dish. But when it says the peace of Christ, let it rule in your hearts, it's talking about the redemptive peace. It's talking about Christ breaking down every wall of division between us and God. It's talking about the peace that has been accomplished on the cross. Because Christ died for our sin and he paid the penalty for our sin. 
And when it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, it's talking about let your heart be so overwhelmed and filled by the fact that a perfect and sinless God would come and die for such an imperfect, sinful creature as me. That's what it means. And in the face of difficult circumstances, when you want to judge someone or when you want to act out in vengeance or violence or anger or whatever it is, you refuse, your heart refuses to do that because of the peace of Christ that he accomplished for you and God. You cannot because it governs your heart. And you cannot allow your heart to stray so wrongly and offend God. That's what that means. That's what it means. That's what it meant for Martin Luther to stand before the council that was condemning him and say, Here I stand. I can do no other. The other one, it's in the same Colossians chapter. After saying, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You guys see a pattern, right? From the bad examples in the Bible about following your heart to the good examples, you guys see a pattern? Well, number one, the heart needs to be in the right place. Well, what does it mean for the heart to be in the right place? The word of God, the law of God, the command of God needs to rule it, needs to be present. It needs to govern it. Let me end with this real quick. So in Nehemiah, in the verses that Carr read, Nehemiah is protecting the priesthood. There are three things we need to understand about protecting the priesthood today. Number one, we need to protect Christ's role as a high priest, meaning Christ should never be replaced with anything else, no matter how good it seems, right? Whatever it is, you cannot replace Christ with church projects. You cannot replace Christ with your social network. You can't replace Christ with your family, with your career, with anything else. We, as believers, our hearts have been regenerated. We must protect the priesthood of Christ and make sure he reigns and that he is the only high priest who is central to our lives, who mediates between us and God. Secondly, we have to protect the royal priesthood of all believers. Every believer has been called, has been regenerated, and the Holy Spirit is making every believer holy so that they may proclaim the excellencies of God who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We must protect the royal priesthood of believers, meaning as believers, that is your identity. That's who you are. You have been called out to be priests for the world who does not believe. That's who you are. So protecting, the, protecting Christ as the high priest, protecting the royal priesthood, the identity of the church, and what we're supposed to do as long as we draw breath on this earth. And lastly, the position of church leaders. 
because every church leader in a minor way acts as a priest to others. We have to protect that role. I'm not talking about protecting the people and making sure they're not attacked. I'm talking about the, pos- the role that God has established. Right? We can't just elect anybody into the leadership. It can't just be for anything. It's not just about being close to that person or what they've accomplished or what they can achieve. It must be done in the way that Nehemiah protected the priesthood during that time. By God's way, according to God's rules, following God's heart. And what it needs protection from is lawlessness. Remember, the key to knowing God's will is following a heart, the desires of the heart that has been regenerated and is being sanctified. That's what you do when you don't clearly know the will of God. That, you, know, you, know, you ever hear it this way? This is, what I'm telling you is just a different way of saying this very common adage. You know, when, when, when you're trying to know the will of God, first determine whether it's sinful or not. Does the word of God permit it, or does it um, prohibit it? That's clear, like murder. But when it's not clear, they say exercise wisdom. You ever hear that? Right? You ever wonder what that means? (laughs) I'm trying to show you from Nehemiah what it means to exercise wisdom in the times where it's unclear. And I'm telling you, it's not merely a skill to just wave around and to perform. Because you can perform something when your heart's not in it. I'm trying to show you exercising wisdom when God's will is unclear. It is central to target your heart. That's what it means to exercise wisdom. It's central to target the heart. Make sure your heart is aligned with the redemptive work of Christ and that you are broken by it. You are completely destroyed by the fact that Christ would suffer for you. And then let the grace of God put you back together so that you can walk by faith and not by sight. It says in Luke 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then right after that, It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In Matthew 7, it gives a very specific example of people who say, Lord, Lord, but their heart is very far from making Jesus Christ as the Lord of their life. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see the connection? We have to protect the priesthood of Christ 
We must not allow anything to replace Christ. We must protect the priesthood of all believers, our identity as a church. We're not a social club. We're not a political platform. We are the purchased body of Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. And we must protect the position of those that we elect into leadership. We must guard it from lawlessness, from hearts that will place confidence on doing amazing stuff like prophesying, like casting out demons, things that wow people, but things that do not require your heart to be in the right place to do. You can, you can wow people while having a very not Christ-centered heart. You can perform really well, but your heart can be completely lawless. That's what it's talking about. And that's what I wanted to communicate to you today. What do you do when God's will is unclear? Right? I hope you don't come away from it saying, follow your heart. Right? It's more nuanced than that. Right? We always have to target the heart. We have to make sure it's regenerate and that it's being sanctified, discipled by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and we pray that God